I haven't slept in about three weeks. I hope it's not too obvious. You do. You do look a little different. You know, the kids yeah. are definitely sucking the life out of you. So there's the life force. Yeah, there's less sleep, uh, even less sleep than when the first one was born. But I guess it's also less terrifying this time. I feel right. I understand now why the second kid in a family always seems a bit feral. Like the parents just can't be bothered at that point. Like, right. Exactly. It will live almost no matter what we do. Exactly. <laughs> Drop it. Eh. <laughs> Pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That's the firstborn's responsibility now. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. Every episode, we help you understand the news, decide what news matters and what doesn't, and enjoy following the story of America and the world more than you do now. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's kick it off with this week's news. First story of the week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel has said he will not pursue the entire judicial overhaul originally planned by his government, but will only move to change the makeup of the Judge Selection Committee. Bibi told Bloomberg he wanted to avoid extremes, either on the one hand, quote, the most activist judicial court on the planet, or on the other hand, a legislature that can just knock out any decision that the court makes. So Netanyahu vowing only to change the composition of the committee that selects judges and uh, seemingly abandoning the rest of the judicial overhaul that has rocked the country, Walter. News or faux news? Well, I think it's good news. I'm not quite sure. Um, you know, it seems, it seems like a very common sense thing. Most of the people I talk to about this would agree that their old method where essentially a majority on the current Supreme Court could block any replacement to the court um, just is is crazy. Um, you know, you imagine how people in the United States would feel sort of Clarence Thomas and and, you know, the current majority on the Supreme Court could forever ban any successor they didn't like. People would be absolutely up in arms over that. So that seems to make sense. But at the other time, saying that, you know, you could overturn any Supreme Court decision, not even with a supermajority of the Knesset, you know, like 67, two thirds majority or something like that, but a simple one vote majority of the Knesset, that's like that. That's a recipe for for the destruction of the rule of law and any framework of order. I mean, it would mean, for example, if if a property title was being litigated, um, your your title to your property would only be safe as long as the majority in the Knesset thought it should be. Or if the contract that you had made a large investment in was, you know, the half of the Knesset didn't like it. So that so it was clearly the right move in that context, at least from an American point of view. 
what's what's interesting is how long it took to get there and how much of an upheaval had to happen in the country. All right. Story number two. The Federal Trade Commission is suing Amazon, accusing it of illegally inducing customers to sign up for its prime service and then hindering them from canceling the subscription. Amazon will meet with FTC chair Lena Kahn and the agency's other commissioners next week in a final push to avoid the antitrust lawsuit. But Kahn appears determined to push the suit that could break up parts of the $1.3 trillion corporate empire. It's worth noting that the 34-year-old Khan, who emerged as a kind of progressive star for her ambition to remake federal antitrust law and break up the big tech firms, saw her two most recent lawsuits going after Microsoft and Meta, respectively, both rejected in court. She's also presided over several high-profile resignations at the FTC in the last year. So Lena Khan versus Amazon, news or faux news? I guess we're going to have to see. Uh, Certainly if she's able to persuade the courts that her theory that, you know, that antitrust laws allow the government to break up companies, even if their actions aren't harming consumers by raising prices. You know, if if she can persuade the courts to do that, I would say that's, that's news and big news. But when I look at the makeup of, of our current Supreme Court, I think it's an extremely dubious proposition. So it, it but she, I, I doubt she's going to give up the suit. I mean, the article that made her famous and made her a star was about Amazon. So this is, of all her pet theories, this is pet number one. But, you know, I would step back from this a bit, Jeremy, and, and, and say, you know, whenever we talk about this antitrust legislation and the whole problem of antitrust and, and you know, monopolies and, and, and trusts, which is like an old word for holding company, basically, um, you know, it is a serious issue. But back in 1900, when this, in, you know, early 1900s, when this was a big deal, corporations were much more powerful vis-a-vis the government than they are now. And for that matter, rich people were. So you had people in the United States whose net worth was greater than the annual budget of the United States. And you had a lot of corporations, a number of corporations, whose value was greater than the budget of the United States. All right. So today, the federal government is a colossus. And even people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are far weaker compared to the government than, say, a John D. Rockefeller or a J.P. Morgan was in 1910 when antitrust was kind of the flavor of of the decade. So we are, you know, and I think a lot of, of our friends on the progressive side and the populist side would like to reenact, you know, sort of they're, they're kind of like 1900s reenactors and they want to be the courageous, you know, populist going up against the behemoth. But we really do need to understand that these days it actually is the government that is the behemoth. Okay. Lena Khan, Rough Rider, LARPer or cosplayer. Our final story of the week. 
U.S. government scientists have achieved net energy gain in a fusion reaction for the second time, fueling optimism that progress is being made toward the dream of limitless zero-carbon power. Physicists since the 1950s have sought to harness the fusion reaction that powers the sun, but until last December, no one had been able to produce more energy from the reaction than it consumes, a condition known as ignition. Researchers at the Federal Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, who achieved ignition for the first time last year, recently repeated the breakthrough in an experiment that produced a higher energy output than in December, according to the Financial Times. So limitless, zero-carbon energy, Walter. Is it too good to be true? Is it news or faux news? Well, I'm, you know, I'm very happy about it. But you know the story that will make me sit up and pay no take notice is when they succeed in producing energy from one of these things that costs less than the resources used to produce it. I mean, if you figure out what the kilowatt per hour cost would be of this little burstlet of energy they got from this reaction, we're talking billions, all right? This is not yet a competitor for your local power plant. Uh, so and and it it has a very long way to go. I hope it works. I would love for it to work, and the faster it works, the happier I'm going to be. But I am not counting on this to solve any of the climate problems that we're sitting around worrying about today. For that, I'm afraid, my dear friends, it's going to be fission, not fusion. We have a very large, very effective, safe source of energy. It's nuclear fission, not nuclear fusion. It always amazes me that everybody goes, oh, nuclear fusion, that's so beautiful. That's so wonderful. That's so green. That's so futuristic. Nuclear fission, oh, that's the most evil thing I can think of. Nuclear weapons, Oppenheimer, you know, it's fallout. We're all going to die. All right. It, it just underlines the degree to which a lot of people who think of themselves as very rational, science-motivated, serious, grown-up political actors are emotional nine-year-olds when it comes and, and are completely sort of controlled by this sort of labeling of concepts and words. Fusion, fabulous. Fission, the worst thing imaginable. Well, that does it for the news this week, but it's a perfect segue into our next segment, The Learning Curve. Each episode, we draw on a blunder or big mistake from history with relevant lessons for our own time. Walter, so far we've been delving into 19th and early 20th century history for the learning curve, but today I want to talk about some big mistakes made more recently and how they've come back to bite us. So when the Soviet Union dissolves at the end of 1991, Ukraine emerges as an independent country with a significant arsenal of nuclear weapons on its territory. The Clinton administration expends quite a lot of diplomatic capital convincing Ukraine and also Kazakhstan and Belarus to return those nukes to Russia in exchange for accession to the Non-Proliferation Treaty and, crucially, the Budapest Memorandum, providing Ukraine with U.S. security guarantees. The Ukrainians are reluctant to do this for obvious reasons, but as 
Madeleine Albright said at the time, and as you you quoted in a Wall Street Journal column earlier this year, quote, we, meaning Americans, stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future. So eventually the Ukrainians do agree to give up the nukes in exchange for American protection and hope for the best. Fast forward to 2014, Russia invades Ukraine and the Obama administration essentially decides not to honor the Budapest Memorandum. Crimea gets annexed, there's a war in the eastern provinces for eight years, and then finally in February of last year, the biggest land war in Europe since World War II breaks out. So Walter, what's the big blunder here? Is it Clinton thinking the liberal international order could actually guarantee Ukraine's security better than nuclear weapons could? Is it Obama's tepid response to the initial invasion in 2014? What's the kind of plausible counterfactual here? Well, there are just so many errors there. It's a festival of error. Um, But um, there we are. Look, I think... um, The Budapest Memorandum, in a sense, was not so much an American mistake. It was a Ukrainian mistake. Because if you really look at what the Budapest Memorandum promises, it promises nothing very specific. It basically says, if if something should happen to Ukraine, we will think very hard about what the right thing to do is. And honestly, you can say we honored that 100%. Uh, so, you know, um, I mean, that was the thing. It was, it was really, it was, it was a, you know, it, it, it was not a specific commitment. However, the Ukrainians didn't actually control those nuclear weapons at the time. Um, in fact, you know, this whole thing actually reminds me of you know, there's the story of how the Dutch bought Manhattan supposedly for $24 of beads from the Indians. And people sort of say, oh, those, those evil Dutch or those naive Native Americans. As I understand it, the, the band of people who sold Manhattan didn't live there. They were just <laughs> passing through. <laughs> and so, you know, they were happy to accept a bunch of beads from these weird people for something they had <laughs> absolutely no interest in. And I love to think that New York City was founded on a real estate deal where each side was cheating the other. Uh, But back to the Budapest Memorandum, the um, Ukrainians didn't really control those nuclear weapons. The controls were actually in Russia, and they had no means of, of using them. So I don't know what if Russia, if they'd kept the nuclear weapons and Russia invaded, what would they do? Throw them at the Russians? Um, It's not, it wasn't a realistic defense. There's no way that Ukraine, which has never been a very successful country economically, could have really afforded to, to maintain a nuclear stockpile. So in that sense, the Ukrainians were selling basically a useless asset to the Americans who wanted it to go to the Russians uh, for in exchange for a useless promise. So not really a huge thing. Now, the Ukrainian mistake, to the extent there was one, might have been to think that we are we're more serious and moral and ethical than, in fact, we turned out to be. That's a very common mistake in international relations and not only about America. But 
you know, where did we go? But, you know, this is all, I'm just skittering around on the surface. The real question you're asked is, like, why are we having this stupid war and whose fault is it? Is really what your, what your question is about. And there, I think, there was a mistake. And the Clinton administration uh, did make it. And Madeleine Albright was up to her neck in it. But so were a lot of other people. And that's this. At the end of, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was the question, well, what are you going to do about the lands between NATO, which at the time ended in the middle of Germany, and the new boundary of Russia, which is something like a thousand miles to the east of the old front line between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. And what was ultimately decided was that with the exception of the Baltic states, the former Soviet republics like Ukraine and Georgia and Belarus would not be in NATO, but that ultimately the Baltic states and the other Warsaw Pact countries, except for various Yugoslav, ex-Yugoslav republics, which were having their own fun and games at the time. I guess Yugoslavia was never in the Warsaw Pact. So, but they were... Um, uh, they would be ultimately integrated into the EU and NATO, into the West. Um, it sort of makes some sense from a standpoint, both of levels of economic development. Ukraine was a very, very poor place in 1991. It is in many ways comparatively even poorer because it, it has not actually been much of a success since 1991 economically. Uh, and the richest part in the old days was the Donbass, which is now most devastated by by war. So, um, you know, and, and you still, when the EU looks at what would it take to bring Ukraine into the EU today, uh, the numbers are terrifying. Um, you know, uh, you would have to fundamentally change the way the EU works to make room for Ukraine. And let's not forget that a lot of the history of post-1991 Ukraine has been a history of corruption, of very, very shady dealings, um, a court system that, that has never been particularly transparent. Uh, it, would have, it would have been a more difficult country in the EU than either Poland or Hungary has been, I suspect. So um, that was a problem. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if, if you have a lake and you put a bunch of no fishing signs up on one side of the lake, but you don't put up any no fishing signs on the other side of the lake, you're sort of implicitly saying that fishing is permitted on the other side of the lake. And that's what we did. And with, you know, in Belarus, Wagner Group has just moved into Belarus. So I think, you know, for all intents and purposes, we can see it as even more of a Russian uh, outlying affiliated province than it's been. And it's Russia has invaded Georgia, it's invaded Ukraine. So, um, and Russian troops are in Armenia, not that they're doing anyone much good there, even the Armenians. But it's, so um, we fail to develop a coherent security picture for what would be happening in Eastern and East Central Europe after the Cold War. And now that in a sense, Weimar Russia, uh, the Weimar Russia of Yeltsin has turned into something nastier, uh, we're facing the consequences. 
just to go back to the kind of sliding doors moment in in 2014, I mean, was there a scenario in which the Obama administration could have guaranteed Ukraine from Russia or at least punished Russia so severely that it went no further? Or by this point, was the administration basically kind of relying on Putin to guarantee certain interests in Syria and on Russian negotiators for the JCPOA, that there was no way it was going to push him back in Ukraine, regardless of what the political support for it among Americans might have been? Well, I would say this. The um, President Obama was a deeply confused man about, about international politics. He had very good intentions. I think I'm, I'm not one of these people who thinks he was some kind of a secret Marxist agent or, you know, anti-colonial Kenyan mole or something like that. Uh, those things I think are, are, uh, are sort of paranoia talking. But he really had a bunch of, you know, their conservative delusions about foreign policy and their liberal delusions about foreign policy. And President Obama had most of the liberal ones. And so, you know, he was he was talking about, he was trying to, he saw Putin as a potential partner. For that matter, he saw Erdogan as a potential partner in his democratic efforts in the Middle East. Um, he and, and so he tended to, you know, and at the same time, he really fatally underestimated the importance of things like security. I think his, the combination of his failure to respond to honor his own red line in Syria when Assad was using chemical weapons, but rather trust to Putin to defend international law and do the right thing in Syria. And then in the same way, his refusal to um, really step up to the plate for Ukraine, a country which had given up its nuclear weapons, uh, those steps more or less killed any real hope of non-proliferation. Um, nuclear non-proliferation was, was, I think, always a doomed cause, but it, it's possible that future, that future historians will, will put Barack Obama's name on the death certificate as the man whose fatal misjudgments in foreign policy uh, convinced everybody in the world that given the choice between relying on the one hand on uh, American promises or expressions of goodwill and international law like the UN Charter or nuclear weapons, only a blithering idiot would choose international law, the UN Charter, and the word of the President of the United States. That's where he left things. I don't see that anything has happened to change that. Well, that takes us to our final segment, The Big Conversation. And let's stay on just this point, on the consequences of the failure of the Budapest Memorandum or the perception of the failure of the Budapest Memorandum. One of which, as you say, is that we've taught not only Ukraine, but the rest of the world too, that nuclear weapons go a hell of a long way to ensuring a country's security and sovereignty. 
And by the same token, that American security guarantees are perhaps worth very little, especially from administration to administration. And in fact, we do see rising support in, for example, in South Korea for a bomb. Saudi Arabia and the UAE seem to be looking at the same option as Iran's program advances, maybe the Turks as well, and so on. So the big question here, in your opinion, is nonproliferation dead? It was, was this basically a regime that did reasonably well from kind of midway through the Cold War until 2014 or so, but is no longer a realistic goal of international diplomacy? I think we have, I think this is one of those cases where technological progress is working against us. Anybody who's seen the movie Oppenheimer knows that, you know, to get that first bomb, it took this consortium of some of the greatest scientists in the whole world, a massive element of the of the budget of the most powerful, wealthiest country in the world, and was this incredibly difficult, desperate thing to make the first bombs. These days, you can make a bomb with a bunch of third-rate scientists who couldn't get tenure at a good research university, right? And you can do it if you're a puny little starveling country like North Korea or a very second-rate military and political establishment like some other countries I won't name, but we can all think of, all right? And it's just going to get easier because the essence of technological progress is to make it easier for people to do things with things. Um, Werner Vinge, the uh, science fiction writer, has said that by the year 20, but he said by some year in the 21st century, you'll be able to buy parts off the shelf at Radio Shack that would let you build up a, build a bomb that could destroy California. Now, I think the only part of that prediction that has clearly gone wrong is that Radio Shack has, has gone bust, bust since then. But, you know, that's, that's the direction of progress is to make it easier and, e and cheaper for people to do whatever they take it in their heads to do. And look, if we're worried about physics, biology is much scarier than physics. Ask yourself in 2050 or 2080 what somebody could do in, a, in the equivalent of a college lab with gene manipulation, creation of new uh, artificial pathogens, viruses, gene-engineered plagues, you name it. So the thing is, as a, as a species, we are, on, you know, we are on this train that is moving down a track at an accelerating rate toward a destination that we don't see, uh, uh, though we wonder if there isn't a loud flash at the end of it. I can't tell you that. So, um, so we have to, I think we have to look at the problems of, you know, whenever a foreign policy doesn't work, and goodness knows in America, we've had a lot of foreign policies that haven't worked. Um, there's always this sort of thing to say, well, if this idiot had only sent this memorandum instead of that memorandum, or if they just like done this one little thing, it would have all worked. Now, I think if Obama had been uh, more of a mensch about Ukraine, 
we might be in a we might have slowed the slide, the grim slide. Uh, but he didn't, and we didn't. But it wouldn't have changed the reality that it is a grim slide. Um, look at North Korea. As far as I can tell, American foreign policy has been to refuse to accept North Korea's nuclear deterrent for the last 30 years. And I am confident that we stand resolved and ready to refuse to accept its nuclear deterrent for 30 more years, if that's what it takes. Heck, 50 or 100, 500 years. All right. Uh, you can call that a policy if you want to call it a policy. Uh, but the reality, again, is that it is getting easier and cheaper to build weapons of mass destruction, whether chemical, nuclear, or biological. And therefore, almost the only way to slow down bad developments is to try to build a, a, a structure of, of peace and security that countries believe in, right? And that's really ultimately where we've been failing since the end of the Cold War. We've thought, you know, um, we haven't paid enough attention to the bread and butter of security policy. Um, we've thought, okay, let's, let's have beautiful values. Let's have really intricate institutional arrangements. Those things can be nice, and in fact, you know, in their own way, they really are important. But if you don't get the, the, the basics down, if you don't have a good workable plan for security policy integrated in an intelligent way into an economic policy that allows you to keep affording the costs of your security policy, then you're, you're headed for a world in which everybody is getting more and more worried about their own security and in which it's getting easier and easier to find ways of guaranteeing your security apart from any American-supported framework. I'm afraid that's where we're headed. Okay, well, on that Kissingerian note, let's end the big conversation and end the episode on the tip of the week. Seeing as it's the 229th anniversary of the opening of the Louvre in Paris, which is of no relevance to anything else we've discussed today, but it's a good enough excuse to ask you for an art tip, Walter. So tell us, what is your single favorite mu art museum in the world that you'd recommend to our listeners and why? That, of course, is a totally impossible question because there are so many fabulous art museums. I mean, the Prado, the Vatican Museum, the Louvre, the British Museum, National Portrait Gallery here in Washington, National Gallery, the um, Metropolitan Museum in New York. How can I? And the Getty Museum, yes, in Los Angeles, even in California, you have uh, great museums. Thank you. So, uh, so there, there's, but I would say for somebody who wants to learn about art, you know, and sort of somebody who now sort of says, ah, I don't know, you know, I keep hearing art is nice and I look and the pictures are kind of pretty, but I don't really feel like it. it's speaking to me. One thing to maybe try is next time you're in Amsterdam, um, you know, don't go to the cafe, don't go to those little pot coffee houses. You can get those at home now, so why bother in Amsterdam? Go to the Van Gogh Museum. 
because the cool thing about that is it has a really large number of his canvases arranged in chronological order. At least they were the last time I went there. Who knows what these curators do? But being able to watch how a single artist over a period of time experiments with different styles, keeps coming back to certain subjects, is, you know, tries different color combinations, you begin to get a real feel for what artists do. And so look for, look for the chance to really get up close with, an, with, a, with the, the body of work of a great artist. And I guarantee you will come away from that with a sharper eye than you had when you walked in. Excellent. There you have it. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. 